Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report Strategy Series sponsored by General Atomics Aeronautical Systems. I'm your host, Vago Maradian, and it is my absolute honor and pleasure today to welcome Dr. Andrew Krepinevich, a soldier scholar uh, who is one of America's leading strategists. Throughout his career, he's focused on learning lessons from history to anticipate and prepare for military change. In uniform, he wrote the seminal paper on the U.S. Army's cultural failure in Vietnam and helped shape another inflection point strategy, the revolution in military affairs, while working for the late great Andy Marshall, the former director of the Pentagon's Office of Net Assessment. Krepinevich is a former president of the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments. He is also the author of the must-read new book, The Origins of Victory, How Disruptive Military Innovation determines the fates of great powers that was released in May. He's now affiliated with both the Center for a New American Security and the Hudson Institute and does some selective advising and consulting. Andy, it's an honor and pleasure to welcome you on this program. Thanks so very much for joining us. Oh, thank you for the invitation, Vago. Uh, our series of conversations with leading strategists and thinkers is sponsored by General Atomics Aeronautical Systems and devoted to the memory of one of the nation's greatest national security strategists and thinkers, Andy Marshall, the former director of the Pentagon's Office of Net Assessment. This strategy series is not affiliated with the Andrew W. Marshall uh, Foundation. And before we get started, Bell sponsors our daily podcast, HII sponsors our global coverage. As I mentioned, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems also sponsors our broader strategy coverage, ultra intelligence and communication sponsors our command and control coverage, and GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval uh, coverage. Andy, before we get into the specific examples in your book, which is just absolutely uh, terrific, it's a technological history, it is a history of great powers, it's a military history book uh, as well, and, and most importantly, it's it's a book about driving culture change and, and how do you uh, how you uh, do that. Uh, it's always said that the nature of war never changes, but its character uh, does. Uh, Chairman Milley uh, gave a great address at the National Press Club a couple of weeks ago, uh, where he discussed that we we're at a truly generational inflection point. What are the confluence of factors that makes this period so historic and so important and potentially so perilous? Well, I think there are two, Vago. One is uh, the maturing of what some people call the precision strike regime. So if you go back to the early 90s, uh, the first Gulf War, uh, the American military uh, implemented what Russian military theorists had called a reconnaissance strike complex. Uh, and so this was the, the kind of capability that was first realized in Operation Desert Storm. And a reconnaissance strike complex essentially involves three components. One is a sort of a scouting force. And this is a scouting force that can uh, function over uh, uh, to great depths, great breadth. So an enormous expanse of, of territory. Second is uh, the ability to feed that information, that scouting information into a battle network that can queue up strike forces. And the combination of the three moving very quickly over very large areas is what the Russians call the reconnaissance strike complex. And they say the Americans were the first ones to come up with this. Over the past 25, 30 years, uh, the Americans have enjoy enjoyed a near monopoly in this kind of warfare. Uh, within the last decade, uh, other countries, particularly China, 
has begun to develop their own, uh, I guess you could say, a, a, a Chinese reconnaissance strike complex with Chinese characteristics. And so for the American military, the question is, how do you adopt uh, to this situation where you no longer have uh, this kind of monopoly in terms of a reconnaissance strike complex? So uh, basically, you're looking at uh, a situation where if we were to go with, to war with China, you'd have the situation where these dueling reconnaissance strike complexes, uh, they both have the same fundamentals, but the way they're applied, their characteristics are somewhat different. That's a big challenge for the American military that for the past 30 years has enjoyed this kind of monopoly and all of a sudden it's gone. The second, uh, I think, major issue for us and for other militaries is the, the likelihood that the, the character of war is, is going to change uh, yet again in dramatic ways. And I, I think as uh, General Milley said, uh, this is something that's becoming more and more widely recognized. So the the rapid advances in artificial intelligence. Uh, we have things like synthetic biology, <clears throat> of course, robotics, uh, drone warfare, and so on. Uh, things like quantum computing that could change very differently how we think about things like scouting. Uh, there's additive manufacturing that could transform logistics, uh, what people call 3D printing. So there are these number of factors. Uh, we can go into hypersonic weapons and directed energy and so on that seem likely to uh, put another layer on top of this mature uh, precision strike regime. And so for our military, and quite frankly for others as well, uh, but perhaps for ours uh, to a greater extent because we've gotten comfortable to having this big advantage, uh, this is a period that's going to demand a, a high level of innovation. And so the book makes a difference or it differentiates between sort of standard in innovation, getting better at what you're doing now, as opposed to disruptive innovation, which is basically transforming in a dramatic or radical way the way you conduct military operations. Your book title uh, says it all, right? That victory depends on anticipating change and shaping a military that will beat those of your adversaries, even if that conflict is uh, decades ahead. Um, you use uh, four examples of this sort of tect uh, tectonic change that also then had uh, right enormous consequences for the powers both that won and the powers both uh, that lost. Um, you know, we have one naval example, one land, uh, two aviation, although one of those is a naval aviation example, uh, where leaders uh, anticipated change and engineered forces that proved to be successful, again, whether years or, or decades uh, ahead. What are the four and why did you pick the four you picked? Well, I picked the four uh, because there are not um, a lot of examples of uh, militaries that engage in disruptive innovation, where they basically create a very different kind of warfare. Uh, and so the, the, the sample size is limited. Second, I wanted to pick uh, different services, different uh, domains, if you will, the, the maritime domain, the air domain, um, uh, the land domain. I also wanted to pick militaries from different countries because there are social factors and uh, so to, to introduce those as well. And the four were the, the British Royal Navy uh, in the late 1890s up through World War I. Uh, <clears throat> the second was the, uh, the German uh, military. And the period there is the period between the world wars where they developed uh, mechanized air land operations, uh, Blitzkrieg. 
Uh, the third, as you pointed out, was the American Navy that went from a, a fleet that was centered around the battleship and the battle line to one that transitioned to being centered around fast carrier task forces. And the final one was the, uh, the American Air Force uh, between Vietnam and Desert Storm, where you have an Air Force that's dominated uh, by bomber pilots uh, that has a very nuclear warfare orientation to one that uh, basically conducts uh, an air campaign uh, that is enabled to a significant extent by stealth and by precision. And the interesting, there, there are a number of interesting characteristics and common characteristics uh, that apply across all four cases. And that's what I was really hoping to find because uh, if they provide clues as to what sort of things matter, uh, if you are a military that is trying to engage in disruptive innovation. So that's the reason for the four. And, and, and what are, um, I mean, I thought your weaving of this in the book uh, was terrific. What are the common characteristics and the attributes that time and again, uh, right? I mean, at, at this time when we're debating, you know, numbers or, you know, it's better to have fewer number of more bespoke systems or more number, you know, a broader mm -hmm. number of somewhat less uh, um, uh, exquisite systems to, to borrow a phrase from former uh, uh, Defense Secretary Gates. What are the attributes that have consistently shown up? over all of the examples you investigated? Uh, well, briefly stated, one is uh, you, you have this very uh, this strong sense that uh, warfare is becoming very different. So there is this vision of a different way of fighting. And uh, for the Royal Navy, for example, uh, it was Admiral Fisher was sort of uh, the, the key driving force there. He was the head of their Navy. And he uh, said that uh, you could transform the British fleet to engage basically in long range gunnery um, and you could outrange the other guy. Think of uh, sort of uh, the early era of long range precision strike. But this was also informed by the problem that he saw. So you, you know, you're not just doing this in the abstract. He saw warfare changing in terms of the kinds of threats uh, that could be uh, confronted by the Royal Navy. And so his problem was the development of submarines and torpedoes, particularly long-range torpedoes, and the range of torpedoes was increasing dramatically. So the, the way the British Navy would conduct operations in the event of war is they would show up at your naval base and they would wait for you to come out. They would blockade you. And as long as they bottled up your, your fleet in port, you couldn't get out and threaten their commerce. You couldn't threaten their control of the seas. Problem arises when the other guy uh, creates what is sort of a, an early 20th century anti-access area de denial problem. They come up with torpedoes, uh, torpedoes of increasing range. And so the, the blockade has to move back further and further to stay outside the torpedo range. That means more and more ships. Well, you can't afford an infinite number of ships to maintain this, this blockade. And so you also, if you were going to engage the enemy fleet, you had to be able to engage beyond torpedo range. And the, the enemy fleets would have destroyers. They would have submarines who were equipped with torpedoes. So how do you, how do you deal with this, uh, this problem? And Fisher's, one, of, one aspect of Fisher's uh, solution was uh, to build uh, the first modern battleship, the Dreadnought. 
which was uh, a ship of incredibly uh, novel technology, if you will. It uh, could go faster than any other battleship. It could fire further than any other battleship. And fishers uh, used to talk about uh, speed. If you can, uh, if you have an advantage in speed, you can set the the engagement range. And if you can do that, and you have uh, longer range guns, uh, and so he uh, supported the idea of the all big gun ship. So everything fires at long range. None of this mixed armament. And that was his big bet in terms of what he thought the Navy needed to do. Uh, in order to win uh, in this new this new era of, of maritime warfare. He also did other things. Um, for example, he was uh, big on wireless uh, to give the Royal Navy uh, an advantage in the ability to concentrate force at the at the decisive point. Uh, he shifted from coal to oil fuel, which was a big risk because Britain had plenty of coal, but no oil. And so you had to have this steady supply of oil in order to basically enable your ships to go faster. Uh, turbine engines, which he shifted to away from recipro reciprocating engines, uh, enable that speed. And so you have these, these various factors. Uh, if you look at the, the German military, uh, they were left with a big problem at the end of World War I. Uh, their stormtroop tactics had uh, enabled them to penetrate the trench lines uh, of the French and the British. Uh, the problem was they couldn't sustain their advance uh, because troops would get tired, they'd wear out. And so you had this concentration, counter-concentration problem where the British and French could counter-concentrate and reform their defenses uh, more quickly than the Germans could continue to advance. And the, the solution for that ended up uh, being found in mechanization and aviation and radio. So you could move a lot faster. Radio would allow you to coordinate uh, fast moving forces over a broad area. And mechanization meant you could sustain the advance over time. And that laid the foundation, these technological advances laid the foundation for Blitzkrieg. In the case of the American Navy, you had the situation where uh, you had this new technology, uh, aviation, and what did it mean for the, uh, the Navy? And initially, uh, aviation helped solve the battleship's problem of uh, firing accurately because aircraft could, uh, with wireless, with radios, could be used to scout the enemy fleet and report on their position and also report on the accuracy of the uh, the gunnery, uh, you know, where the splashes were occurring, whether you needed to increase uh, your fire range or decrease it and so on. Uh, but uh, there were people like Admiral Sims, who uh, was president of the Naval War College, and he testified before Congress in 1925. And Sims, <laughs> to the surprise of many, said that the, the carrier is the ship of the future. And the interesting debate was uh, within the Navy, uh, between the, the carrier or the aviation enthusiasts and what was called the gun club, uh, the battleship battles. And the, the debate there essentially was, uh, could, uh, could carrier aircraft sink battleships? And of course, we had the famous uh, Billy Mitchell, Ostfriesland test, um, but that was kind of killing a tethered goat. Uh, the Ostfriesland was a a German battleship that uh, we had taken as a prize after World War One. It was basically uh, put in a, a position where it wasn't maneuvering, so it wasn't trying to evade, uh, you know, the bombs being dropped on it. 
the the aircraft were told exactly where the ship was. And so it became uh, a source of debate. Uh, Mitchell and others would argue this shows that uh, air power is going to be dominant. Uh, the battleship admirals are saying, well, we wouldn't fight like this. Um, the issue really comes to a head over time um, when the people like Admiral King and, and some others realized that if you could, if you had an aircraft that could fly beyond, uh, beyond say 200 miles or so, uh, carriers would not be vulnerable to a surface engagement where they'd be sitting ducks. Um, and if they, this air, these aircraft could carry a heavy enough payload, uh, a thousand pound bomb, a 2000 pound bomb, then it became practical to think about carrier sinking ships, battleships. And the question was accuracy then. And the Navy invested in various ways to try and solve the accuracy problem. One was torpedo bombing, another was horizontal bombing, where you fly horizontally, you drop the bomb. Uh, and the third was dive bombing. And it turns out right. dive bombing is really uh, the game changer, as we saw it, for example, at Midway. Um, and so what you have is, is a, a vision by somebody like Sims, uh, this issue of you know, what ship is going to be the capital ship of the Navy. And of course, uh, the Navy had done enough in the 20s and 30s to position itself. So while the Royal Navy really, really never did uh, engage in disruptive innovation, uh, the Japanese did. And fortunately, we were able to keep pace with the Japanese. So that was that was kind of the, the summary of, of that particular um, change in, in, uh, in uh, the U.S. Navy. The... Uh, I, sorry, I would point out, right, that the uh, USS Texas, uh, I should just give a shout out to it, right, was the first to do those experiments with aircraft. And the USS Texas, of course, uh, is at San Jacinto and get undergoing uh, a modernization uh, as the world's uh, oldest uh, battleship. So anyway, I just thought I'd give that a little plug. Yeah, they, the, in 1919, those were some of the first uh, experiments that were done. And quite frankly, that gave the, the aviation enthusiasts uh, kind of... Uh, a way to get their nose under the tent in the sense that they could go and say, you need to support naval aviation because we're going to make you battleship admirals look better. Uh, we're going to allow the battleships to perform more effectively because basically our role is going to be scouting uh, to enable you to cross the, the T of the enemy fleet and we're going to improve your gunnery accuracy. Um, but it wasn't very long before the naval enthusiast said, uh, as Admiral Sims did, uh, and we're going to displace you over time. Right. Um, and then the final example is um, the American Air Force, which is, uh, had a, a difficult time in Vietnam uh, during the Vietnam War, uh, very high attrition rates, much higher than we had in the Korean War, which led a lot of uh, folks uh, in the, in the uh, senior Air Force ranks to say, you know, what, what are we doing wrong here? And then they began to look at um, the advance of Soviet uh, air defenses in Europe. Uh, they looked at the 73 Middle East war between the Arabs and the Israelis, and they became very concerned that we just could not uh, stand uh, the kind of attrition that was being forecast in the event of a war with the Soviets. And what happened was uh, there was this guy named Wilbur Creech um, who became a head of uh, uh, TAC, the Tactical Air uh, Command uh, in the Air Force in 1978. And he said, we're gonna change the way we fight. And he said, uh, up till now, 
We've been sort of doing it the way we would do it uh, in the event of a, a nuclear war. We would pick out a target and we would send a strike package in. We would hit the target. We would come back and we would do that again and again and again. He said, we need to think more in terms of a campaign, how we would basically destroy the enemy air defenses. And that would let us uh, operate much more freely as opposed to looking at these attacks in terms of discrete uh, you know, individual right. strikes. And so he um, he changed the way they did business at uh, at Red Flag at Nellis. And the way they had done it was kind of like the movie Groundhog Day. So uh, a unit would go out there and they would uh, conduct this this uh, high fidelity training against an opposition force uh, with, you know, Soviet like radars and, and fighters and so on. Uh, but every day they would start all over again. So every day, whatever you lost, uh, you got back. Whatever they lost, they got back and so on. Right. And he said, we're not going to do that. He said, whatever you lost on the first day, you lost. Whatever they lost, they lost. We're going to run this for two weeks as a campaign. And your job is not to hit the target. I mean, it is to hit the target, but it's eventually you know, the, the key is to take down their air defense, their integrated air defense system. And once you do that, you can pretty much hit whatever you want. And they, were, they he found out um, they um, they uh, you know the the blue team on our side was uh, was dealing with an op four that that was really jamming us. Uh, the Soviets were good at jamming, and so after he found out that after the first day or so they would dial back the jamming, and he raised uh, what General Kulak would call the bullshit flag. And he said, uh, you know, we're not going to dial back on the jamming unless you destroy the, the source of the jamming. Right. And so he made them fight uh, against a, uh, a true opposition force and he made them fight a campaign. And then when you layer in uh, the application of these new technologies, so Creech had a lot of influence on uh, the equipment uh, that the, the Air Force was, was going to get. And again, he began to put together the piece parts of what became the reconnaissance strike complex. So he was a big uh, supporter of AWACS and J-STARS. Uh, the, the Air Force uh, was uh, not enthusiastic about stealth, uh, but people like Bill Perry, when he was uh, uh, running um, uh, the, uh, the technology office in the Pentagon in the 70s. He was the DDR&E at the time. Right, right. So he, he worked with the... Uh, uh, with uh, the Air Force and, and assured them that uh, the F-117 would not uh, affect the procurement of the F-16. So that money was fenced. You know, he wasn't threatening uh, the Air Force institutional uh, priorities. And so um, the combination of these things, uh, stealth, and then of course the precision weaponry that was developed uh, in the latter stages of the, uh, the Vietnam War, when you combine that with people, uh, innovative thinkers, uh, like particularly Dave Deptula um, uh, in the, uh, the black hole leading up to Desert Storm, uh, where they did the planning uh, for the air campaign, uh, this all paid off in terms of a very different way of approaching the problem with significantly different kind of military equipment. Um, and uh, the result was this, uh, you know, great surprise, this great, wonderful surprise in the first Gulf War where the American Air Force uh, was just stunningly effective. Right. So you, those are, uh, you know, the keys, I guess, here are uh, two things. One is, uh, do you have a vision of how things are changing? What really matters? Two is, do you know the problem you have to solve? Uh, and one thing I think uh, we're having a problem with today 
is we have not decided on what what the operational challenge is that we uh, need to take on. Uh, so we have these abstract concepts of what we're going to do. But for me, the principal problem uh, for the US military today is how to deter and if necessary defeat uh, a numerically superior, technologically sophisticated adversary uh, in the Western Pacific uh, in as part of a coalition and in a way that avoids escalating to nuclear warfare. Um, and so you have a specific rival, you have a specific, specific geography, and these are the sorts of things that can inform, really need to inform, right. uh, because you operational concepts are not one size fits all. So uh, you, know, you need a vision and you need some sense of uh, how, you know, what your problem is and how you're gonna go about solving it. Um, there is something called a virtuous cycle, and it is the process by which you figure out how you're going to fight and how you're going to refine that, how are you going to try and hedge against the fact that you could be wrong. And the, uh, the American Navy uh, between the World Wars really offers the, the best example of what constitutes this cycle. So the Naval War College, there was a great deal of thinking about where warfare was headed, uh, in the period between the world wars, the great deal of analysis. And once they got this analysis, uh, Sims came back. He was uh, the senior US Naval officer in Britain during World War I. He comes back to take over the war college. And they, they he, he says, well, you know, these carriers, the Brits were developed, the Brits at the end of World War I have all the world's aircraft carriers. He said, I'm, you know, I think there's really something here. So they begin to war game it. Uh, they war gamed. Uh, plan Orange, which was a war against Japan. That was the war plan. They war gamed it uh, over 120 times over 20 years. Uh, so you figure they're doing this uh, on a persistent basis, trying to figure out, getting insights, trying to figure out how they can gain an advantage in this. They began to do the fleet exercises or fleet problems, and they take the whole fleet. And this is something the, the British did with the Royal Navy, trying to figure out how to deal with the anti-access area denial of torpedo problem. Right. Um, but they take the whole fleet out, uh, sometimes a couple of times a year, and they conduct these, uh, I, I guess you could call it as, as, as high fidelity as you could get for that period of time. Uh, because they realize you're going to find out things when you take the fleet out that you don't find when you're thinking or when you're conducting war games. Right. And some of these exercises, the boundary was Alaska, Hawaii, and the West Coast. Uh, so you have this attempt to, uh, you know, find out things about, well, you know, what about logistics? Are we going to have enough fuel to fight the way we think we need to right. fight? Uh, you know, what, what can, you know, do the, the, the carriers need to operate as part of the battle line or separate from the battle line? So, you know, these exercises are being fed into what today we would call the Navy program. Well, right. yeah, we like aircraft, but we like aircraft with this kind of range, this kind of payload and so on. And these, these uh, insights are being fed all the way back into the analysis, which again, informs the war games, which again, informs the fleet problems and informs the Navy program and Navy personnel issues and so on. And that is the virtuous cycle that helps you either refine your operational concept the way you're going to fight, uh, or uh, it shows you that this thing just, just won't work. Um, and uh, at the same time, there are investment strategies uh, that you have right. to hedge against the fact that um, you could be wrong. And so, for example, the Navy somewhat serendipitously has these, uh, you know, is looking for how are we going to hit 
you know, the target with our aircraft. And as I mentioned earlier, uh, we have torpedo bombers, we have horizontal bombers, we have dive bombers. You know, we're, we're trying to build options. They built big carriers, uh, they built small carriers, they built Goldilocks middle-sized carriers to try and figure out what was the optimum size in terms of the relationship to the air wing and so on. Uh, and so there was this really, and we don't have that today, quite frankly, uh, which is something that really concerns me. And the final point I'll mention here is this is not uh, obviously something that's done overnight. And what you find is that the real driving forces behind this are military leaders that have extended tenure. So we rotate guys and gals in and out, you know, two, three, maybe four years if they're lucky. Fisher was head of the Royal Navy for seven years, and then uh, he's brought back during World War I to take over the Navy again for a while. Uh, Admiral Moffat, uh, the, the driving force behind our naval aviation, was head of the Bureau of Aeronautics uh, for 12 straight years. Um, and of course, the other, another example is Rick Over, who was around for about 30 years or so. Um, in terms of preach and uh, tech and uh, you know, Nellis operations, he came in in 78 and he stayed until 84, so six years there. Uh, and then you have people like von Zecht in the German military who was around for, I think, about seven years as head of the, uh, the, uh, uh, the, the German military after World War I. We don't have that. And um, one time before they disestablished uh, GIFCOM, when I was uh, when Mattis was running it and he and I were having a conversation, I was expressing my concern about this. And of course, this is a problem for, for a guy like Berger, whether you agree with what he's trying to do or not, he's not going to have right. enough time to succeed, uh, which you know puts him behind the eight ball almost from the get go. But uh, I said to Mattis, you know, if you really, if we really were serious about doing this right, um, we'd have the, the the commander of GIFCOM. You know, he gets a three year, he she gets a three year tour. If if we think they're making progress, they get a second tour, so it's six years. Right. And if we think they're doing well, then they get four years as vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs to help guide this thing all the way through. And of course, the the other issue is, can this leader, in, in every case, this happens, can you institutionalize uh, this effort? And what, what that means is, can you uh, create a critical mass of rising officers and get them in the right place so that they can sustain the effort? Uh, because it's it's even 10 years may, may not be enough. And so Fisher has something called the fish pond, for example, and those are the admirals he's cultivating, the junior admirals to take over when he leaves. And again, uh, if you look at Creech, um, Jumper is one of his acolytes, Horner's one of his acolytes. So you find these people who, um, again, uh, Mike Carnes is another one, um, who can sustain this effort. And one of the interesting things for me, and then I'll shut up, is you find a lot of similarities in these cases with what goes on and what they found in terms of the corporate sector uh, and people like Clayton Christensen and Joe Bauer and some of the others uh, about uh, disruptive innovation in the corporate world. So there, there are these common features that <clears throat> extend not only across these four military cases, but more broadly um, with respect to organizations in general. 
Um, in in that, Andy, you, you answered a whole bunch uh, of questions about uh, you know culture and uh, a whole bunch of other elements in terms of how to get it right, right? Because these were uh, leaders, you know, sort of first order leaders who saw what the future was and then uh, you know broke through you know bureaucratic barriers uh, and and like in 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 terms of you know shaping kind of cogent long term uh, strategies uh, to get us there, right? I mean, one of the things you didn't mention was the Navy given how fast airplanes were moving, didn't want to buy any particular type of airplane in, in, in too many numbers, uh, for example, which were handy. The Germans had been disarmed. So it was they were able to rebuild from scratch without having a lot of uh, you know, older uh, kind of uh, equipment lying around. Over the past 30 years, right, you and a number of other folks have been studying uh, the problem of China and the kind of capabilities they're building, the kind of vision of the future they had, basically to systemically undermine every single one of our strategic advantages from sea to subspace, uh, to land, to long range uh, strike and with uh, precision. From your standpoint, have the Chinese sort of figured out what the problem is and actually gotten a lot farther than we have? And do we now have an opportunity to leapfrog their 30 years of investment in sort of an abbreviated way? Because it seems like it's only recently Although in fairness, right, it wasn't 2014 or so that the Obama administration went into the holy crap, you know, we've got to start moving, but it's been a decade since since then. Or are we, you know, do, do the Chinese have a better idea of what's going on about the future of warfare? And is there a way for us to, in short order, solve the problems that they're presenting us with to maintain that level of deterrence, as you mentioned? I think the Chinese have a better handle uh, on things than we do. Um, if you look at um, their version of a reconnaissance strike, strike complex, we have three elements, they have five, but essentially they're the same. They have a much better sense of the operational challenge. And of course, uh, they're focused on the, the so-called first island chain. Um, in terms of things like uh, algorithmic warfare, systems destruction warfare, uh, I think uh, they have, uh, again, uh, a, a better idea of how to apply their particular strengths against our weaknesses. So uh, if you look at the reconnaissance strike complex, uh, the Chinese want to go after <clears throat> us in what they call the intangible domains, uh, right. cyber and the electromagnetic. They want to break up our nervous system. Uh, if you look at the military as sort of a body. Uh, they want to strike, uh, and of course, they have a monopoly in ballistic missiles. They want to strike our forward air bases, our carriers, where most, most of our strike power exists. Right. So they, they want to go after basically the brain and the muscles. Um, and the systems destruction warfare, algorithmic warfare, uh, I think they see as, as the way to do that. When they were weaker, uh, much weaker than us, uh, they... Um, talked about Sashujuan, which is uh, basically Assassin's Mace. Right. And the, the story behind that is, is how the weak destroy the strong. And the Assassin's Mace is something you hide and you, you, you re reveal it at the last minute. It's basically a club and you club your target to death. And so if you look at um, uh, their approach, it is... Uh, you know, we can fire a lot of missiles at a carrier and, and still if, if, if one in a hundred uh, hits, uh, we've still won the cost exchange. 
the Americans right. have a lot of fantastic aircraft in an airbase. Um, okay, again, we fire 100, 200 missiles, whatever it takes. If we take out most of the aircraft at that base, um, we, again, um, win on a cost basis. Um, and th there are also other factors, but they have focused, I think, uh, in a way that's much more clear to me than our approach on what they call the, the speed domains and the intangible domains. And so right. electromagnetic and cyber, the intangible, um, they're also part of the speed domains, which includes space, um, because their uh, space moves this stuff, this information, and the, uh, the air domain. So much less on the, the ground and the maritime uh, domains relative to the speed and, and uh, intangible domains. What are, so what are the problems that we need to be solving and do you think, you know, and, and sort of what's our window to try to get this right? I know that people talk about windows, right? But mm -hmm. the Chinese have been very clear. They want to try to accomplish this for the centenary of the PLA, right, in 2027. Right. Um, so, you know, what are these specific problems you think we ought to be focused uh, that should shape us? And how, you know, is it possible for us to leapfrog them? And what's the reasonable window, right? I mean, is there a deterrence window as far as you're concerned? Well, uh, again, as far as deterrence goes, you you have to gaze inside the, the mind of uh, people like Xi Jinping and, and the others. But um, one of the things I'm working on right now is an operational concept for how you defend the Western Pacific. Uh, you know, think of air land battle, the outer air battle, uh, the maritime strategy and so on during the Cold War in Western Europe. What are the analogs to that uh, in the Western Pacific today? And they have to be specific uh, because you have a specific problem, you have a specific geography and so on. Um, my sense is that the military balance continues to shift uh, toward China uh, and it's been going in that direction for quite some time, uh, we have to begin to think about how we're going to stop the shift and maintain uh, a stable military balance of power to enable deterrence. Um, right. There are, um, you know, there are uh, a range of planning factors. We could have discussions for hours on this, but Right. One has to do with the, the amount of resources uh, that we're going to make available. And quite frankly, if you look at us relative to China, uh, China right now is about 80% of our GDP, depending upon how you measure it. Um, the Soviets were about 40%. The Axis power is about 40%. Imperial Germany, about a third. So China, relative in a relative GDP sense, much more formidable. Uh, or we have much less powerful allies than we did during the world wars or world, uh, or the cold war. So right. there's not that external uh, assistance. Our physical position is worse, uh, much worse. Uh, editorial in the New York Times today talking about uh, our weakening physical position. So the ability to liberate resources for defense is much more constrained. Um, how do we think about allies? Uh, this, is, this is not NATO. So um, what allies do we have, um, you know, beyond, say, Japan and Australia? Uh, can we create a coalition, the kind of um, coalition that Bridge Colby talks about? I think that's very important. Uh, and then we did, again, this, this thinking about how you're going to fight. So um, I'll tell you that uh, for me, um, looking just, let's just look at the army. Uh, to me, uh, one question is, 
how do you get the army uh, to the fight? Uh, you know, the army would take months uh, to deploy sufficient forces to the Western Pacific. So you have to change your military posture from an expeditionary posture right. uh, over time to perhaps to a forward base, but at least in the interim to a forward deployed posture. Uh, and then you have to think about well, what's the army going to do? And I think the Japanese army has given us a clue. Uh, they are focused much more on air defense, missile defense, uh, coastal defense, uh, basically uh, anti-ship cruise missiles based on land, um, providing overwatch to minefields at the, at the choke points along the first island chain. So there's a, there's a whole lot of moving parts, Vago, uh, that go into this. And this is part of you know, what I'm looking at in terms of archipelagic defense. Um, you, you've been uh, theorizing on that, by the way, uh, for uh, some time. And, and again, we're among the first to be writing about the assassin's mace uh, capabilities the Chinese uh, were developing. Why is it, Andy, so hard? Right. I mean, we've we've studied the problem. Andy Marshall was studying the problem. You were studying the problem. 30 years ago, the kernels of uh, the capabilities to unhinge what we were doing, we saw, we read the Chinese. I mean, you know, the reading Chinese works on this is like a roadmap. They've left plenty of signs about the kind of capabilities they wanted to uh, develop. Why is it we have not yet cogently responded? Is it because we tell ourselves how good we are and you know, even though folks were ringing alarm bells, we were whistling past those graveyards. Is it extreme risk aversion? I mean, honestly, I can't imagine a, a, a Moffat uh, or a Mitchell or, you know, even a Creech would, you know, have the maybe bandwidth maneuvering room uh, today. I mean, wh why, why is it that we are where we are and seem unable to move? Well, uh, <laughs> this is another uh, potentially long conversation, but uh, in by the thumb... way, you're welcome. You're one of the people who's welcome back anytime to have, uh, yeah. you know, even if you want to break these conversations up into component and, parts. Well, a, a thumbnail sketch would be um, as follows: um, for the last thirty years, uh, we've had this monopoly in precision warfare. Uh, so uh, dealing with a, an enemy that has a reconnaissance strike complex has been somebody else's problem, not ours. Uh, so now it's our problem as well as theirs. Uh, second, we've had 30 years to develop bad habits. And so the military talks about operating in permissive environments. Well, uh, our enemies, let's pick the Chinese, uh, they've been looking at how to operate in non-permissive environments uh, since Desert Storm. Uh, so they, they've got 30 years of, of uh, arguably learning about these sorts of things and thinking about them. Uh, third, we've had 30 years to develop bad habits. Uh, we operate in permissive environments, or we've been focusing on counterterrorism and counterinsurgency, uh, while these other militaries, and again, particularly the Chinese and the Russians, have been focusing on how to beat the Americans. Uh, we don't let our senior people stay in position long enough uh, to affect the kind of change uh, that's, that's needed. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, General Berger uh, had the odds stacked against them from the very beginning. Um, so that's a problem. Um, another problem is it's become much more complex. So we like to talk about multi-domain warfare. Um, I count up to eight domains and the advances in precision and range and scouting ability 
basically uh, allow for cross-domain operations. Well, um, as you know, we were talking earlier, the American Navy could pretty much go from a battleship Navy to a, a naval aviation Navy uh, pretty much on its own. Uh, today, everybody's crowding into everybody else's battle space. And so coming up with a coherent approach, I think organizationally becomes much more difficult. Um, we have a, uh, a defense budget that is uh, skewed in terms of procurement, not in terms of creating options and opportunities, but sort of a Costco kind of approach where uh, to support right. a certain size of force that we need, you have to buy in bulk, which means you, you don't buy, you don't have a diverse set of capabilities. You, you try and focus on relatively few so you can buy them at the lowest cost. Uh, we don't have a virtuous cycle. Uh, so where are these exercises that mimic uh, what these four militaries were conducting? Uh, these exercises at the operational level of war that, that uh, test out operational concepts. And in the late 90s, I was talking about developing a joint or even combined uh, training center uh, that would allow you to radiate uh, the way we need to uh, with a uh, an opposing force, an op four, and I remember talking to uh, the head of Australian uh, policy, uh, Hugh White at the time, and uh, you know said we we need something like this, and we talked about it, and I said a great place would be Australia, right? And he said the only reason you don't have that here is because you haven't asked for it, and yet we still don't have this. We conduct numerous exercises. Um, there are more demonstrations that really exercises that help us refine our operational concepts and so on. We don't emphasize and promote uh, people who have a talent for strategic thinking in the military. Um, and so, uh, again, that, uh, I think, uh, hurts us. So, and finally, when you talk about doing something very different, so think about the four organizations I talked about and the four uh, disruptive uh, innovations they engaged in. There are some major winners and losers that come out of that. Uh, and the right. losers are typically those who are in positions of power. So when I talk about an army that focuses a lot on air defense, missile defense, coastal defense, uh, you know, mine overwatch and so on, uh, that's not uh, mechanized maneuver forces. And uh, uh, that's not tube artillery primarily. And those are the kinds of uh, tribes that uh, dominate the army. And so that's a very hard sell to people who understand the value of what they do, but may not understand that that value would diminish in a very different situational context. Right. Um, what, what I find uh, interesting um, is, right, Jackie Fisher got rid of 150 antiquated ships uh, with the wave of a hand and caused a giant stir. But he said, look, th these are more trouble than they're worth. And if you try to do that in the American system, oh, my God, you know. So uh, in each case, you find uh, Fisher had something, it was, they actually had a name to it. It was called the Syndicate of Discontent. Right. It was a, a group of admirals and politicians that were actively working to undermine his reforms and his ideas. Um, von Secht um, had uh, junior officers saying, you know, despite the reputation of the German army, they, they had a very open uh, debate and um, uh, about where where the military needed to go. And he was you know, roundly criticized by a number of quarters. Um, uh, the uh, Again, the gun club, uh, there was one incident where 
uh, after one of the fleet problems, the, the naval aviators were so upset by the way the battleship admirals were, were using carriers uh, that they wrote this, this scathing after action report. Uh, they were told to just, you know, not to forward it. Uh, they ceremoniously burned it. Um, you know, you have, so you have in the Vietnam War, you have um, the Air Force, which is dominated by bomber pilots at the time, uh, force feeding bomber pilots uh, into the, the combat air forces in Vietnam. So you had these bomber pilots trying to figure out how to fly fighters. Right. Uh, and of course, one of the reasons why we had the attrition rates we did uh, was because the bomber pilots wanted to make sure that their their guys got combat experience. So it's, um, again, uh, you have the situation where uh, if you're talking about creating a significantly different military organization, uh, there are some things that uh, are important today that won't be very important tomorrow. And uh, whether it's uh, within a military service, uh, within uh, people's congressional districts where things that um, you know, get built, uh, may not need to be built anymore. Right. Uh, there's a lot of, uh, you know, built-in opposition. And so one of the challenges is to come up what I call uh, with a, as, as a target folder uh, to identify those people who are going to win uh, as, as a consequence of this transformation and to make sure they know that they're going to be winners because you, uh, there's sort of three steps to this. One is to come up with a, the idea of where you need to go. Uh, second is to sell it to the political leadership if you're a, right. a military leader. And the third is to be able to actually implement it if you get the, the go ahead to, uh, yeah, let's do this. Well, uh, can you actually execute? So those three elements. And the third, I think, is uh, sometimes I think it's often the hardest. What are the biggest lessons of the Ukraine war that you think are most applicable to an Indo-Pacific uh, oh goodness! Um, I think one is uh, to draw upon President Eisenhower: uh, uh, no war ever turns out to be the way you expect it to be, uh, and I think that's certainly the case with respect to Ukraine. Um, second one, off the top of my head, is um, if we go to war in the Western Pacific, we need to plan on a long war. Um, and, and uh, that has obviously complications, deep complications. Uh, I actually right. ran a summer study for the Defense Department back in 2016, where we looked at a protracted war um, with China. And um, you, you, it really changes the way you think about things, and uh, especially things like uh, mobilization. Um, one of the things I tell people about archipelagic defense is, okay, I have this concept, um, this concept, if, if it succeeds, will only buy us a ticket uh, to a long war. In other words, uh, archipelagic defense will help us hopefully avoid losing a short war, uh, but we can't force the Chinese to quit. We can't force right. them to quit because we can't you know, occupy China, and China has nuclear weapons, which means uh, we'll never eliminate their ability to resist unless we want to risk the nuclear holocaust, which we don't. So uh, I, I think um, the one thing Ukraine has told us is that the Russian blitzkrieg didn't happen, and that there are consequences, which is we don't have um, the you know we don't have the industrial base we need, we don't have the you know munitions, uh, the ability to to generate munitions the way we need to, we don't have the stockpiles we need to, and, right. and so on. 
Uh, and and obviously, I mean, I, I've made the case that we need sort of an infrastructure measure for defense infrastructure and uh, defense investment and facilitization and all of uh, the things that we concluded, uh, despite reason, uh, are not uh, important. You know, we we need in an era of greater range and persistence. You know, our number one program, and it's a very good airplane. Ultimately, is a short-range fighter, as opposed to the kind of capabilities you need to be able to operate uh, in at, at distance and in uh, denied environments. Let me ask you one last cultural question. Um, the Chinese have been very methodical in all the things that they've been doing to build the capabilities, the mass. Um, as you said, have been making some of the right choices, are focused on some very uh, economical ways of causing big problems, especially in space where they're particularly active. Even undersea, they're doing some very inexpensive things to cause very big uh, potential problems. But General Hoop Hooper, uh, you know, a fellow uh, West Pointer and one of the nation's great minds on China, um, is fond of saying that the Chinese have read every book on fishing, but they've never actually been fishing. Uh, that the last combat experience they had was in Vietnam, and that was not a very positive experience. Do we have any sense on whether or not the Chinese are making the cultural changes? Because the Russians have a lot of equipment. I but think it's their cultural defects that mm -hmm. keep them from being effective. Their brutality is where it works, and the Chinese, I suspect, will be equally brutal. Anyway, what's your sense on that? Uh, I, I think he makes a good point. I think we do one of the great sources of advantage we developed in the latter stages of the Cold War was high fidelity training. So Top Gun, Red Flag, National Training Center, uh, these sorts of things. Um, my concern here is uh, I, I do think the Chinese are trying to make improvements in that area. Um, so that's point one. Point two is uh, a question of have we gotten really good at doing the wrong things. And, and by that, I mean, uh, not wrong in that you shouldn't have this, this kind of expertise, but a lot of our attention over the last 20 years has been focused on counterterrorism, counterinsurgency. That's a different kind of war. Um, conducting um, uh, precision warfare in a, a benign or a permissive environment is very different from uh, doing it uh, when the the other guy uh, has a reconnaissance strike complex. So my concern is, have we been uh, getting better at doing things that matter less? And the third thing is, and I'll go back to this, is where is the the joint or the combined national training center that puts us up against a Chinese A2AD force? Uh, where is that training center? And, and you know, where where are these operations? Uh, being conducted so that we gain a, a proficiency against the real problem uh, that we'll confront if we go up against the Chinese in a general war. Let me ask, uh, just before we go, one, one last question. Is today's technological age any different than it was for Fisher? I mean, if you look at it, we went from horse and buggy to automobiles, to planes, to radios, to optics, to steel, to propellants, right? I mean, it was an incredibly dynamic age. I think people have a tendency to forget electrification. Mm -hmm. is, is this age any different in terms of the magnitude of technological change than we saw at the turn of the 20th century or, or um, 19th century? I, I think it's broader in, in the sense that, um, as you, you know, Fisher was looking at uh, the development of electromagnetic technology, like you mentioned, electricity, chemical advances in, in, in chemical um, chemistry, metallurgy, um, these sorts of things. Um, 
I think ours is is broader in the sense that you have on top of this 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 information dimension. So he was in the industrial age. We're in the industrial information age. Uh, we have to worry about cyber, uh, much more sophisticated electromagnetic. Uh, if quantum computing becomes a reality, that has all sorts of issues in, in terms of biological warfare, uh, in terms of modeling, um, the, uh, the interaction of, of molecules and so on for biological warfare, maybe chemical issues. Right. Um, additive manufacturing. Uh, so I, I think it's, it's uh, more disciplines are, of course, artificial intelligence. Um, and it's more distributed, right? So well, everybody it, is in this game simultaneously as opposed well, yeah, to just a handful of great much, powers. Yeah, it, it was uh, to some extent true of Fisher. So you you, know, um, you had, you know, he was exploiting engines. He was exploiting new forms of propulsion. Uh, he was um, looking at, uh, again, metallurgy in terms of uh, ship armor. Uh, so these sorts of things were, were out there in the commercial sector. Uh, there were some proprietary military, just like there's proprietary military technology. Now, not too many commercial firms are trying to build hypersonic planes. Right. Um, so, uh, but I, I think the the breadth, as you mentioned, Bago, uh, certainly. And one interesting question would be: Is it is it moving faster? Uh, the other thing I think that um, was far easier for Fisher is he was looking at warfare pretty much in two domains: the sea and the undersea. Um, today, if if you're the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, uh, or even if you're a service chief, it's eight domains. It's it's uh, you know, you have to think about uh, okay, if, if if I'm you know trying to maintain the sea lines of communication between Pearl Harbor and the first island chain, I'll be looking at space. Uh, I'll be you know maybe uh, in addition to the sea, the undersea, the seabed. I'll be looking at cyber. I'll be looking at what ground forces can do in terms of closing off choke points, uh, long range uh, air force aircraft. So it's um, it really is a much more complicated. Uh, choreography uh, than it was in Fisher's time, and so um, I have a great deal of sympathy. Uh, although I, I, you know, I'm sort of uh, uh, critical of the American military in terms of that you know we need to get things done. We're not getting it done, but a great deal of sympathy because it is a very hard problem. Uh, yes, uh, but if it was easy, uh, right? I mean, as as uh, the great Frank Kramer uh, always points out, right? Well. You know, it's why we get the big bucks. Uh, yeah, you know, at the, Jimmy, at the end of the day, we got to do it. I like to quote Jimmy Dugan to Donnie Henson uh, he, in the League of Their Own. Uh, he said, uh, if it was easy, anybody could do it. He said, it's the, the hard that makes it great. And uh, I think those who solve the, the wicked problems, the hard problems, uh, those are the people we remember. Uh, indeed. Although, I, and I, I don't uh, necessarily doing this for Dave Deptula's sake because he is the dean of the Mitchell Institute. I just would point out Mitchell, in a sense, was right. Right when Repulse and Prince of Wales were sunk uh, by land-based Japanese air power, those were moving battleships that still got sunk by torpedo uh, and and bombing aircraft. Well, and and they were deployed wrong. I mean, they 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 were not part of a um, yes of the kind of task force where you had bristling in our aircraft guns and so on. But yes, uh, they were right that way. They were wrong about strategic bombing until we came up with nukes. Uh, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, we, we, this is, we've got to have you back, Andy. Uh, thanks uh, so very much again. Uh, we wish you best of luck on the book. Again, I can't recommend this book 
uh, highly uh, enough. And we really should have had a two hour session with Andy in order to just plumb. Uh, and, and hopefully it sparked enough interest in the audience for you guys uh, to definitely check it out. Andy, thanks so very much for joining us. Very Thank you, you, and you're welcome back anytime. Thank you. Take care.